Boris Coleman. I'm Nick Weiler. And I'm Erica Senior. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Mariko Bennett, a fourth-year MD-PhD student in Van Barris' lab here at Stanford. Thanks for joining us today, Mariko. Thanks for having me. So, Mariko, we have here the makings of your favorite cocktail. Can you describe what it is and how you make it? Great. So, my favorite cocktail is the Michelada, and it essentially is a beer with Clamato drink that sounds totally gross and has things like Worcestershire sauce, hot sauce, and limes in it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. I'm a little bit terrified. <laughs> so I too was terrified. I uh, recently, in the last year, moved to Redwood City, and we live right across the street from El Griense, and so we go there often. And we saw somebody next to us drinking what looked to be a terrifying Bloody Mary with beer in it, and since then it's become our standby drink in our house, <laughs> and it is delicious. Excellent. And how do you make it? Okay, so we usually put ice in. Tomato juice with clam juice in it. Oh, so it's so <laughs> gross! <laughs> wow. Uh, and so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put uh, a little bit of Corona. That is a big bottle of clam and tomato juice. That was the smallest one they had at the store. And don't worry, it's from Concentrate. Yeah, <laughs> it's 100% organic drink. So I. So that looks like mostly beer. Mostly beer. I might have overdone this. I usually make a really large one, mm. so uh, we'll see how I go. Uh, so I would fill it up, you know, two-thirds of the glass with beer and ice. Uh, there's actually a lot of ice in here. Put Clamato until it, you know, turns the color of Clamato, which is kind of a uh, juicy color. Half of a fresh lime. And I don't have a plate for the special Kloss Xenax Chilito and Polvo, or chili powder sauce, which has things like probably MSG, lime, dehydrated lime juice, chili peppers, citric acid, which is very important. Uh, and normally we'd rim the glass with some lime juice and put that in there, but instead we'll just sprinkle it on top. Then it gets a couple of shakes of Worcestershire sauce. Oh, <laughs> turning a nice reddish-brown color. Nice is one way to describe it. It looks worse than it did. Some hot sauce. This one's from Louisiana. It's multicultural. And a sprinkle of the Kloss Xenax Chilito and Polvo. Why is it called Xenax? Uh, that's the brand, I don't know. That that's just the part that makes yeah, it. Sound. I think the most important part about drinking this drink is not to ask too many questions. <laughs> <laughs> noted. noted. We seem poorly qualified. Just then. enjoy it. So, all right. Cheers. 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 To the clamato. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. I it's can see it. A bloody mary with Corona, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not. I'm, I don't know if I can handle bloody marys on the daily. So, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a lot lighter than it. Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit. And you probably put vodka in there if you want, but that might get a little too intense. A little too too awesome. intense. Yep. And I've uh, experimented with a lot of different beers, and you can make it with pretty much. So, is that the worst cocktail someone's coming and made now? <laughs> <laughs> so far. <laughs> so far. <laughs> okay. To be fair, you're only our fourth guest. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> counting on and the rest of the neuroscience page. Okay, so on your advisor's Stanford profile, your advisor, Ben Barris, he lists his research interest as, quote, the mystery and magic of glia. <laughs> so, what is so mysterious and magical about glia? You know, I don't know what's magical about glia. But maybe we'll figure it out. I think what's mysterious about glia, which are the cells in the brain that are not neurons, 
is that nobody knows what they really do. Our lab's interested in trying to figure out what cells like oligodendrocytes and astrocytes and microglia do in the brain. I think magical is because uh, my boss really likes Harry Potter. <laughs> and so we have microscopes in the lab that are all named after Harry Potter houses. So we have Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw. Uh, we don't have a Slytherin, actually. Mm. Um, do the microscopes have personalities? Yeah, so some of them are crankier than other ones. Some of them have better objectives than the other ones. I know you could make a lot of metaphors. <laughs> some of them are inverted. Some of them are upright. Can you give us some, some more just sort of background on what glia are and, and why they haven't been studied as much? So like I said, glia are basically the cells that are not neurons in the brain. And I think the origin of the word glia is that they're supposed to be the glue. So it was thought... Um, based on old histology, when people were doing stains with the stains that they had back in the day, the only thing you could really stain would be things like nuclei or maybe DNA or RNA, and then some complexity in the cells. So that when you stain a brain preparation, it's really boring looking. So in other organs, you have like tubules and lots of vessels and you know crazy structures that make each of these organs unique. But in the brain, it mostly looks like a bunch of neuron cell bodies. And so it was thought that all the other stuff surrounding these cell bodies was just this glue that would hold them together. Um, and so I don't think anyone studied these other cells because they didn't really know they were there for a long time. Mm. But then looking at like old pathology tissue from patients who had died of mysterious neurological diseases, they realized that suddenly there were more of these nuclei in the brain. Hmm. Um, and so they thought for a while, well, they must be the neurons, the neuronal substances. But it turns out maybe they actually were some of these glial cells that had been very reactive to the injury. So when people have neurological diseases, there are more glial cells? There can be, yeah. So for example, after a stroke or in multiple sclerosis lesions, you get infiltration of cells from the periphery outside of the brain, but you also get local um, proliferation of, of cells. But then in the last 50 years, as we've developed more tools to study different cell types, I think then people have become really interested in what glia are doing. So what would happen if you removed all the glia from the brain? Probably die. I see. Um, that would be bad. But people have tried these experiments <laughs> where they have not all of the glia together, but different types of glial cells and tried to temporarily get rid of them in a mouse. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by temporarily? How do yeah. you temporarily <laughs> kill everything? Uh, so you you're temporarily be, dead. You're temporarily <laughs> dead. So the cell itself was dead forever, uh -huh. but the population <laughs> was only temporarily dead. So one way you can do this is you use genetic tools that are driven by cell type specific genes. And if you have a mouse like that, you can give it some sort of a toxin. So normally we use diphtheria toxin. And if you temporarily get rid of the cell, and I say temporarily because what was surprising is that in a lot of these situations, at least for the astrocytes, which are the bigger star-shaped cells, or the microglia, which are they're derived from the same cells as the blood, if you try to get rid of those, they tend to proliferate and come back really robustly. And so it's really hard to actually kill them all. Can you tell us a little bit more about these two different kinds of glia and their, their functions in the brain? Yeah, so the astrocytes and the microglia. So we don't know. It's a mystery. But uh, the astrocytes are derived from similar cells to the neurons. And what our lab has showed and, and other labs have, have shown is that they are important for maintaining the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. So the ability of your brain to regulate what's actually going to go into your brain. In addition to that, I think what other people in my lab have contributed to the field is that astrocytes are really um, critical for the formation of synapses between neurons. And so that was sort of previously unknown because in many 
models and systems, neurons can form synapses between one another without the help of other cells. But we found that if you actually purify the neurons and purify the astrocytes, very, very pure preparations, that uh, you have a decrease in the number of these connections that are formed. And then the microglia, if you actually do some like high-level microscopy, you see that at the synapse, yeah, there's that cleft and there's the synapse. But if you look just outside of the synapse, usually what you can see is you can see either an astrocyte or a microglial cell, and sometimes both. And so they talk about now these like quad partate synapses that are between the pre- and postsynaptic cell, but also astrocytes and microglia being involved. Is this a physical connection? Are they connected by the same like cell adhesion molecules, which would allow for cell-cell intercellular communication, or is it all through receptors on the astrocytes that are responding to whatever neurotransmitter? No idea. Okay. Uh, so I don't think anyone knows, actually. So I think we're just going to start drinking Corona straight now. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything out loud, but yeah. Uh, you want some ice? Uh, yeah. No, it's good. Um, so I don't think anyone knows what the molecules are that mm -hmm. form that, and whether it's just a closeness, I guess, or whether there are actually ties that bind. Um, ties that <laughs> I mean, it's known that there are, you know, transporters for different neurotransmitters um, on the astrocyte that help maybe recycle neurotransmitters. But how the microglia home to that place, we don't know. It could be activity, but it's not clear why they would go to the synapse versus going to like a node of Ranvier or something in the white matter. Mm. One signal it could be, it could be ATP. So microglia and astrocytes are very responsive to ATP. Maybe ATP is released at the synapse as, you know, a co-transmitter or something like that. Um, but we really don't know. Somebody should study that, Erica. <laughs> I'll pass. <laughs> In addition to that, both astrocytes and microglia now seem to be able to actually eliminate extra synapses, so extra connections between neurons during development and then we think during diseases. On the other hand, so the microglial cells, I mentioned that they're derived from like similar cells to the blood lineage cells. And so unlike being like related to neurons or to astrocytes, um, they're more like not even in the same family tree and in fact are from cells during the very, very earliest stages of blood formation before it's even gone into the embryo, in fact, so outside of the embryo. And these cells go to the brain, and um, they make up 7 to 10% of the cells in the brain. These are the cells I study, so I get very excited about them. <laughs> <laughs> and they have a lot of functions they've been implicated in. One of them, as I mentioned, developmentally, normally they go around and actually eat uh, synapses that are formed, and probably weak synapses that are not going to become um, strong, useful synapses. And then another thing that they've been hugely implicated in is after injury. So when I was saying that the number of nuclei sort of increases or the number of cells increases from these old stains, probably it was happening is there was an increase in the number of microglia. And they're very closely related to a cell type called the macrophage, which is a professional eater. And so during injuries and things like that, they actually help mount an immune response. And, and like to eat a lot of things. So how do the microglia eat the synapses? Do they engulf the entire synapse at once, or is it more of a gradual breakdown and eating of the synapse bit by bit? So there's two models for this. So it's a really good question, and we get asked this a lot. Uh, in fact, there are a lot of haters that don't think this really happens <laughs> actively, <laughs> but is instead a passive process. So there's two models that we have in mind. One is a very classic phagocytic model. By that I mean that a cell express it so in this case the neuron would express a signal that says okay like come and eat me but specifically at this point and the signal we're not sure what the signal is but we know that it has something to do with activity so a lack of activity probably somehow signals now okay it's time to come eat me and so then what happens is the microglial cell and, and astrocytes to do this as well 
are very mobile with their processes. So the cell body doesn't usually move, but like their little tiny protrusions can actually move quite rapidly. And it will form this cup around a synapse and can actually envelop that cup. And so... so Sorry, can you explain, try to explain that again? Sorry. Yeah, so, so there's a cup that's formed from the microglial cell, and it'll wrap around the synapse that's to be eliminated, and we think this might happen on the presynaptic side, mm-hmm. and it can actually pinch off the synapse into that cup, and then what happens is it forms what's a fat called a phagosome, or then becomes like an endosome, like a lysosome, inside the cell, and that's what gets degraded. So there's the axonal bouton, and so you're saying that the, the bouton would get pinched off, but the axon itself wouldn't be cut, just a bit of the axon just would get... a bit of the axon, cut. the parts of the membrane where they're expressing the eat-me signals. Part of the reason we think this could happen is that there's a process that happens in the eye regularly, mm-hmm. where the outer segments of the photoreceptors are actually eaten by mm-hmm. the epithelium that's there. So that's one model. It's an active process that the cell comes and actually chomps off a piece, so like biting off you know, a piece of fruit and then leaving what's left behind there, except there are pieces of membrane. The other hypothesis for how this might be happening is more that this bouton becomes senescent. And I always confuse the word senescent and sentient, so I have to be very, very careful. <laughs> one, means, one means self-aware and the other one means, means quiet. Old and dead. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the boutons do not become sentient, they become senescent. <laughs> and, and every time I have to check myself. It's not for suspense, it's so I don't say something I don't mean. And actually, the it will bleb off of the cell. And so it's common that, that things like exocytosis can happen, and exocytosis could happen on a big enough scale that it would actually be pieces of the synaptic membranes that were getting lost, and the microglia eat those. There were a whole spat of papers when the mice that were expressing sparse labels could then actually watch the dynamics of spine formation. Mm-hmm. Seeing boutons form and go away, mm-hmm. they make a point in saying that they never saw little blebs of isolated fluorescence. Coming off, yeah. Coming off. Now, it may happen that it happens, I don't know, one idea is that it's happening much faster than they were looking. Mm-hmm. Would the idea then be if people look faster, continually looked mm-hmm. every, I don't know, how often would they have to look in order to catch these little yeah. So there, yeah, so there's two problems. One is that microglia are really good at clearing things. And so this is a common problem when trying to look at whether a cell ate something. It's kind of like the kid who eats the cookie. If there are no crumbs, you have no idea they ate the cookie. Yeah, yeah, and that yeah. kind of is what actually happens. Um, there have been studies that have thought, oh, the microglia aren't playing any role. But then the moment you block that, you realize, oh, they were just cleaning up after themselves really mm-hmm. well. So it could be a time thing. And to me, that would be like a time problem that you're just not right. catching it fast enough. The other problem that I think is I don't know if the resolution is high enough to see it. And part of that is because, you know, in order for the limits, a lot of the limits of my, like microscopy, we're talking about distances that are much greater than the synaptic distance. And so I have this problem, too, when I'm trying to tell if the microglial cell is actually eaten something or taken it away, mm-hmm. is that I can't tell if they're actually touching or if it's inside the cell. Mm-hmm. Because it's very difficult to do that. And so maybe as we get better at developing tools to actually visualize this process, we'll be able to, to see this. What we do know is that if we label axons, then you can see those particles inside of a microglial cell. And so that's why we think that they're they're actively involved in eating this. And is this something that is happening all the time? Yeah, as far as we know, we think it happens during certain critical periods during development, but that there must be some sort of a process that's happening regularly through adulthood. And so I've been sort of looking at this process happening in the spinal cord between microglia and oligodendrocytes, or actually the myelin sheath, and seeing if I can detect. And and, and there have been old reports, actually, that you can detect bits of myelin in a totally healthy, adult, normal spinal cord inside the microglial cell. 
Mm-hmm. And is this a process by which you help turn over those membranes? It's not clear. So you're interested in finding out if the myelin sheaths are actually getting engulfed as well? Yeah. Yeah, ultimately, that's sort of the, the side project. Um, that's sort of a good clinical question. We don't know how these crazy sheaths actually ever turn over. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as we know, the oligodendrocytes are there for the entire life, but it seems very difficult, actually. And we used to think neurons were there the whole life, but actually, you know, we know that there's neurogenesis now happening. So one of the consequences of not having glia in there, getting rid of synapses, would be that you'd have too many synapses, you wouldn't be able to prune back excessive connections or weak connections that you want to get rid of. So do you know what any what the consequences are if they're not eating the myelin? Don't know. We or somebody after we will try to test actually what would happen if you were able to block this. So this mm. is the original question I started grad school with, was this very sort of focused question of what's the relationship between microglia and myelin, and is this a process of turnover for the myelin, and what would happen if you block the process? Mm. And, you know, the hypothesis being that maybe if you can't block that process, the, t- the outer sheaths get sort of senescent, and then they somehow release antigens into the periphery that could then be picked up by T cells, and then you could form, you know, you could think the, the sort of feedboard mechanism of ending up with like a multiple sclerosis type of situation. Unfortunately, as is most common in science, I sort of set out on this question wanting to answer this question and realized we don't have any tools to answer this question, <laughs> and so I had to back up many, many steps into mm-hmm. generally what do microglia do? And then finally, I think lately I've been asking, what are microglia? Um, and so it's become a very philosophical <laughs> Wait, what do you mean by, so, so dive into the philosophy for us, why suddenly, it sounded very clear what they were. Uh, yeah, I know, So I then know. What, why is it not clear? Yeah, so this is why I drink a lot of micheladas, um, <laughs> to answer these questions. So, so we think, think it's really clear. Up until about two years ago, there was no experimental evidence that microglia actually came from the bone marrow. And... In fact, two years ago, someone demonstrated that microglia never come from the bone marrow (laughs) unless there's an injury. And so basically using some, finally having genetic tools to do fate mapping of these cells and their origins found that they come from the yolk sac, which is outside of the embryo. In a mouse, this happens during the very first week of development as the neural tube is forming and then beginning to close. And they go to the brain, and they stay there for the whole life of the animal. And this is in contrast to peripheral macrophages. So everyone thought they were just brain macrophages. But peripheral macrophages, so in your liver, in your skin, in your blood, these cells are constantly replenished from the bone marrow and from monocytes derived from the bone can, marrow. Can you back up with some embryology <laughs> for a second? You said they come from the yolk. The yolk sac. The yolk yeah. sac. And, and I must I must admit that I, <laughs> I don't know what the yolk sac is. But you've heard of the yolk? I've heard of the of yolk like in egg. the context of breakfast. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I, I suspect that yeah. you were... So I, this might le- reach some elements of my knowledge, but I'll tell you what <laughs> I know about it. And if there are any developmental listeners, they can correct me if I'm wrong. But the yolk sac is a, a thing that supplies a lot of nutrients and uh, a lot of um, growth factors, I guess I'll just call them generally, for the developing embryo. And, and it's, it's but it sells outside the, of the embryo. It's outside of the embryo, but it's cells that came from the combined genetic code. Exactly. The, and then that divides the... into embryonic tissue and extra embryonic tissue, which makes up things like the amniotic sac and things that we know about. But the, the yolk sac is kind of one of those extra embryonic tissues. And the reason we mention it is because it's the first site of hematopoiesis. It's the first site of blood formation hmm. for this new life. And so progenitor cells are developing in that yolk sac and migrating into the embryo. Then eventually hematopoiesis moves to like something called the AGM and then to the liver and then to the bone marrow. 
but that happens throughout uh, fetal development. So these cells derive from the yolk sac, so they're not even in the embryo. Um, and it's still unclear if that stem cell is the same one that gives rise to your bone marrow stem cells or not. We think it might be, but the transcriptional program required to make microglia is different than transcriptional program required to make macrophages. And are those microglia, are you continuing to make them? or? Yeah, and so if you kill them in a temporary way, so you kill the cells and then they start to proliferate back, they don't come from the, the bloodstream. They come from the brain. So hmm. somewhere in the brain is this mysterious microglial progenitor cell that no one's identified. Oh, so you have no idea where they're coming from. Yeah. Wow. So if there was an error in the cell division very early on in the yolk sac, that was giving rise to the stem cell that gives rise to your microglia, it's conceivable that you could have microglia that are screwed up in a way that's totally different, different than the way that your the rest of your genetic code. Yeah, so so like there could be some mosaicism, yeah. basically. Like there yeah. could be like some genetic screw up in the microglia, not imperfect. That's true. And it's also true that uh, like even maybe less complicated than that, and you can tell me if this is what you were getting at, that a genetic mutation could affect your microglia and not your peripheral macrophages right. based on the fact they have these unique origins and yeah. transcriptional programs. They're probably, they are different cells. So that's what we thought. And the reason I'm sort of asking this question of what are microglia is that like a hot topic in neurology, which is a field I would like to go into, is the idea of using bone marrow transplants to cure neurological diseases. Mm. And part of that has to do with the fact that you can actually do a bone marrow transplant and it's really hard to do a neuronal transplant. <laughs> and in fact, when they've tried these in a few Parkinson's patients to do a neuronal transplant, it really hasn't done much. And by neuronal transplant, you don't mean brain transplant. You I mean... don't. I mean <laughs> specific tissue from the brain. <laughs> Although somebody's doing head transplants, right? They're doing fecal transplants. Well, transplants. fecal, yeah, anyway, wrong end. Um, <laughs> so, so because of that, and, and, and if you thought about like, oh, if we could get cells in the brain that we could inject into the bloodstream and they would go to the brain, what a great way to deliver drugs hmm. to the brain, which is sort of behind this barrier. So there have been several mass papers and actually several human studies for gene therapy of autologous, so from the, the patient's Metapoietic stem cells being transferred uh, and through a bone marrow transplant into and, and, and curing neurological diseases. But not really a bone marrow transplant, more like a bone marrow extraction, mess with mess them. Mess with them, and then put them back. Put them back. But right. you usually have to do some ablation of the cells that live there so right. that you get engraftment of these new corrected cells. And so this has worked now for X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy, which is um, an adrenal gland disease, but also a demyelinating disease um, for kids who have a cerebral form of it, um, which is fatal by like 11 or sometimes younger. And then recently there was a paper showing that gene therapy corrected bone marrow uh, transplants could be used for metachromatic leukodystrophy, which is also a central nervous system disease of the white matter. And on top of that, there have been mouse studies showing that in Rett syndrome, which is kind of one of the autism spectrum disorders, it's now a known gene mutation, so it's sort of out of the autism spectrum, that it can correct disability in that mm. disease in a mouse. So to clarify, the gene therapy treatments that you're talking about haven't yet been approved by the FDA, but there are all these ongoing clinical trials that you spoke of. And from what you just told us, it seems like successful gene therapy, at least for this disorder in this case, isn't too far off in the future. So different forms of gene therapy have been attempted in the past, but all of them failed. Can you explain what the problems were with the first attempts at gene therapy and what has changed over the last decade or so that has maybe fixed some of those problems? So what I do know about the previous attempts, so they had accidental insertion of genes you didn't want to have right next to basically oncogenes, uh, meaning cancer-causing genes. And so instead of curing the kids, which they actually had done, I think it was for a skid or some severe combined immunodeficiency or something, 
they actually accidentally gave them leukemia because of where the virus inserted things. And so the viruses they use have changed a little bit and they've gotten better. And so these are all retroviruses because retroviruses are allowed to actually integrate into the DNA, which is good if you're trying to put a curative uh, gene, is bad if it goes into the wrong spot, and is bad if it's something like HIV, which is a retrovirus. And on top of that, I think the screening has gotten better. And so now they can take the, the cells from the patient and they can do the gene therapy on them, and then they can actually look at using sequencing and other methods to see where the insertion is. Okay. So they can actually check huh. um, better. <laughs> so rather than before, they were just inserting, injecting the virus into the Making person. sure it was there. Well, they were doing it into the cells, oh, but then okay. they were saying, oh, did it actually integrate? It did. Great. Let's put them back in the patient. I see. But now they're actually, because of the advances in sequencing, mm -hmm. they can sort of check and make sure that it didn't get inserted someplace bad. That's my understanding. That's your understanding. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> promising. Another unexpected benefit of the human genome project. Oh yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. I use it every day. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. So anyway, so the big question I had is, you know, they're getting these cells into the brain. When the cells go into the brain, they start to look like microglia. They're sort of the same size. They start to have processes the same way. These little protrusions, they call ramified because they look kind of like tree-like. But the real question is, are they actually microglia? Because theoretically, microglia are supposed to come from this different genetic origin. And so a lot of my recent work has been to try to figure out, you know, are cells that go into the brain from the bone marrow actually microglia? Mm. Um, because there are known complications of doing a bone marrow transplant, and if we're going to start doing these on kids, people assumed chemo brain, which is sort of uh, intellectual impairment or problems associated with transplantation or radiation or chemotherapy, was due to the effect on the neural stem cells. What if, in fact, it actually is an effect of getting transplanted peripheral cells into your brain that are not actually microglia? And so is it the changes that are being done to the cells genetically that are allowing them to get into the brain? Because otherwise, why would the peripheral cells, cells from the bone marrow, go to the brain? Yeah, so you have to do some sort of a conditioning paradigm to get them into the brain. And the best conditioners are radiation, which usually these patients have for various reasons anyway, or sometimes for bone marrow transplant, you do radiation. More commonly, they'll use chemotherapy. And usually use these... Um, mysteriously working agents that are called alkylating agents that basically just do massive destruction to different cells. And they break down the blood-brain barrier? And they, number one, can break down the blood-brain barrier, but number two, and probably more importantly, make room in the niche for the microglia mm. to actually allow for cells to come in. Because microglia are more rapidly dividing than the average cell in the body. I don't know if that's true. I think we've oh, got right. cells in our guts that are more rapidly dividing. No, I mean the, <laughs> the average cell. Yeah, so like compared to neurons, for example, right. microglia. So that's why chemotherapy or many of these drugs would uh, so selectively kick, knock them down. I see your point, yeah. Over. We don't know, actually. Oh, really? So, in fact, um, microglia compared to other macrophages are very resistant to irradiation. <laughs> So what I've been doing is working with different paradigms to try to get as many cells into the brain as I can. And so it requires actually the combination of the chemotherapeutic as well as the irradiation. Maybe blood-brain barrier breakdown, maybe destroying microglia, maybe activating the astrocytes. We're not really sure what's, what's going on, actually. So. so the microglia that you transplant into the bone marrow, what are they doing locally there? Do they all go to the brain or do they stay there? How does that work? Yeah, so what we transplant are not microglia, but actually the stem cells, the hematopoietic mm -hmm. stem cells that are normally in the bone marrow. And so in order to get them to take or to engraft in the bone marrow, you have to ablate the other cells. You have to get rid of the bone marrow in the host mm -hmm. through radiation. And so something like 90% of the cells now in the bone marrow will be from the donor. When I think the blood-brain barrier, <laughs> I think about this little, like, the capillaries, <laughs> you know, in the blood vessels. 
and I usually think about, okay, you know, they're blocking some molecules and not other. But right. now I'm thinking about jamming a whole cell through mm-hmm. there. How is the microglia yeah. actually physically entering the brain? All right, again, limit of my knowledge, but I should know this. People in our lab do study the blood-brain barrier. So there are multiple components that make up the barrier. One of them is a physical barrier, which is, I think, what you're thinking yeah. of, of having like these tight junctions between the endothelial cells, which make up the blood vessels, that don't allow passage of molecules or cells. Um, the second, though, has to do with the fact that we, they don't express receptors that would normally allow cells to go into tissue. So in your liver, for example, there's constant flow of cells from your blood into the actual liver uh, and then between these capillaries. And a lot of that isn't just a physical thing. It's actually having receptors that allow passage of these things. And so either making and breaking of barriers, there's some evidence that the crazy stuff happens where whole cells can go through other cells. I don't quite understand that. And so a lot of the barrier stuff that keeps the immune cells out has to do with not having the receptors for it to allow passage. And so when you do things like a radiation or chemotherapy, you upregulate different chemokines or attractant molecules that allow passage of cells. And so one of those is called CCL2, which allows the cells to actually go into the brain. Gotcha. It's a good question. I think about this too. It's kind of scary how leaky your brain is if yeah. you're letting cells go in. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about your interest in neurology and the fact that you're doing an MD-PhD, so getting both your MD degree and your PhD degree at the same time, which I think is also called masochism. <laughs> um, Why did you decide to do both degrees, and what are the challenges in doing that? Yeah, I think age. (laughs) Taking the last question first, age is a challenge. Um, So now I'm 29, which I guess is not that old, but I'll be, you know, in my 30s before I finish medical and graduate school. So I actually didn't start doing both degrees, so I came in as a medical student who had done research before. Uh, Stanford's a really research-heavy MD program where all the medical students are required to do research. Through a connection I had from one of my old labs, I met Ben Barrett, my current PI, and we started talking science and thought, well, maybe there's something I could do, a little project or something. And then I realized that, like, this guy, as Harry Potter-loving and quirky as he may be, is probably the best mentor I've ever met, and this would be a really lost opportunity if I didn't do a PhD with this guy. So um, I think it was really, you know, 50% him just being a great mentor, um, and that it's like one of those things where you like don't know how much you don't know and so as you learn more you just realize more and more how much you don't know and so i came in thinking you know i have a bit of research on my side maybe i could be a clinician scientist just did with the md track but i really liked the lab i really liked the mentor i really liked the questions and so i decided to do both degrees functionally what that'll look like i don't really know i think most people do try to struggle to keep the foot in both worlds but i think what it usually looks like is you have about 20 percent clinical duties try not to subspecialize too much to keep your time down and then about 80 percent of your time is devoted to the lab stuff but i'm really interested in translational research and so i think uh it's kind of nice to have that real view of what human disease looks like if you're gonna going to do that so and then the challenges are really i think time i actually think that's the only sort of challenge i think otherwise i have the best of both worlds i get to meet these huge community of awesome people i get to talk with the uh, medicine people about clinical stuff i get to talk with the researchers about the research stuff i mean it's totally totally awesome (laughs) so i really like it a lot today (laughs) (laughs) yeah well yeah there's always there's always today today's a good day How do you think research can inform a clinician's practice? The direct way, which is the actual knowledge learned in the research lab, can inform, you know, when you're thinking about potential differential diagnoses for disease, you really can think through, you know, not just what 
worked last night for that one patient, but might work for this patient in front of me, because people are very different. Um, and so, you know, the stuff I'm doing, I think, can inform whether or not we should be doing bone marrow transplants on kids. And, you know, what's the threshold we use for how severe their neurological disease will be before we try this effort? You know, is this a last-ditch effort? Is this actually, like, a standard of care we should think about? I think then there's the other part, which I love uh, about it, too, which is, like, the way of thinking like a scientist, I think is really critical for being able to be a good physician. Mm. Because I think trying to think critically when you're exhausted is not easy, but I think if it's automatic, because you do it in the lab all day, you try to figure out, you know, what's the hypothesis here? How much should we trust this new clinical study that came out about um, what we should be using for gold standard care for our patients? And, and being able to think that way is, I would say, the biggest push, even if you weren't going to do research afterwards to consider doing a advanced degree as an MD in research. So you said that, you know, these are really important cells. You really need them to keep everything working in the brain. and they seem to have roles in synapse elimination. Really, a lot of neuroscientists want to focus on how information moves around in the brain and are probably not going to be listening until they think that these cells are involved in information transfer. Mm -hmm. So what is sort of the most compelling or most interesting piece of evidence that you know of that should make a systems neuroscientist make sure they pay attention to what's going on in the glia? Mm -hmm. So I can tell you general terms of some unpublished things I've seen that, to me, are a compelling reason. I don't know if a systems neuroscientist should care about glia. The only time they ever seem to care is if they're, like, implanting an electrode, and then it doesn't take or gets booted out because of the fibrosis of the glia. Yeah. The <laughs> I've gotten a lot of calls about that. They're natural enemies. They're natural enemies. <laughs> Um, or when they prevent you from patching yes. onto a neuron, that also... I think there are two things. And I, I totally understand, like, electricity is super sexy. And I actually didn't study glia. I used to study neurons and how we can make neurons regenerate to their targets. And, you know, I was neurons all the way. Um, so there's two things that are tantalizing to me. One has to do with the astrocytes and one is the microglia, about what they're doing during neuronal activity. And one is that we know that there's calcium signaling within the astrocyte. And as our calcium indicators have become better and, in fact, membrane-tethered, because the astrocyte is this crazy star structure, like I mentioned, but has many, 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 many fine processes coming off of it. And it, in fact, is always touching a blood vessel, and it's enveloping multiple synapses. And when they have these membrane-tethered, so at the membrane, not just in the whole cell calcium indicators, what they find is that the calcium responses of the astrocytes are at least in sync with or may precede, in some cases, the neuronal activity. And it's not clear whether that preceding, if I believe that it actually could precede some of the neural activity, um, but it's certainly a readout of some of the neural activity. And maybe that's not interesting. Maybe they're just listening into the stadium football game, and really the neurons are like actually playing the game. But the calcium signaling in the astrocyte seems interesting. Whether that's involved in recycling transmitters or actually modulating the strength of synapses and like a you know, uh, action potential to action potential level, I don't think we know yet. So that's, I think, one thing that's really interesting for astrocytes. And people have done some crazy in vivo behaving animal experiments using these calcium indicators that, to really show that maybe the astrocytes are modulating at least alertness. So that's one. The second has to do with the microglia, and it's, again, just an observation that I think could be really interesting. So if you do, like, a cranial window on a mouse that has genetically fluorescent microglia, and you probably have heard about this, and um, there's neuronal activity, then what you see is you see the microglial rapidly on the order of probably not one action potential, but maybe a few action potentials or bursts. You see the microglial actually reaching its process out and touching synapses. Hmm. 
And what's been interesting about that is if they tweak the activity so they either drop it or raise it, there are differences in the motility of these processes. And if they look at the spines, sometimes what happens is the spine disappears after the microglial cell has touched it. And it's really not clear what is going on there. Did it eat it, as we were talking about before, or did it tell it to retract it, or really what was going on there? And it's very possible that these cells, again, are just kind of listening to what's going on in the other room and just making sure everything's okay there and waiting to know if they need to be mountain immune response or something. But my sense is that these cells would not waste so much energy being quite so active if they weren't playing an active role in somehow modulating the synaptic function. So those are my two sort of really cool things that I think could, you know, to watch out for about what uh, glia could be doing. One idea that I've heard Stephen, our advisor, talk about, and Stephen loves crazy ideas. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is definitely a Stephen huh. crazy idea, yeah. is that maybe as systems neuroscience, we don't necessarily understand the effects of extracellular space on physiology as well as we should. Mm -hmm. And that, for instance, you know, if you think about how much calcium there is in the extracellular space, and if you imagine that that extracellular space can be modulated significantly by the presence or absence of microglia mm -hmm. that you could actually modulate the effect of calcium input yep. every time a cell spikes by modulating the amount of extracellular space. I totally am like by like drinking that Kool-Aid or whatever because <laughs> I know because I think we talk about ion conductances all the time but like those ions came from the outside and 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 one really you know sort of last thought I have I guess is there's this really interesting phenomenon this is where the medical stuff I think comes in handy where like in the brain there's no connective tissue. In every other organ, we have fibroblasts filling up space, and we have, you know, fat, and we have all of these other things. In the brain, in the absence of pathology, the extracellular space is completely comprised, or, or all its connective tissue are astrocytes, their microglia, you know, their blood vessels, and there's none of this thick basement membrane. There's there's nothing there, and so, and I imagine that that has to do with very, very closely modifying and regulating the ionic environment in the extracellular space. So I'm totally drinking Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> Steve would be very happy to hear that. Um, shall we play a game? Yeah. Oh, Let's play a game. I didn't know there were games. Oh, yeah. Well, we have a drinking game at the end. Oh. It's not really a drinking game. It's just a game we okay. play while we're drinking. Okay, so... Oops. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <yeah>. is radio. <laughs> <laughs> Make just attempted to pour a closed bottle of Corona into her glass. Yeah. The thing is, this is even not alcoholic. It can't be the alcohol. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. So this is a game that we call Not My Field. Okay. Um, you may recognize it. Nope. Um, <laughs> and basically, we're going to read you the titles of three papers, and you are going to tell us which of them is the real paper. Okay. So we've got, I like we've, got we've got three rounds. Okay. We'll read you three papers each round. I guess each of us will do one of them. Okay. Um, so, so they're made-up titles and one real title. Two, is, two are made up. By us. <laughs> okay. Uh, Erica, do you want to go first? Sure. Okay. So question number one, option A. Duration of cud chewing in, in ruminants correlates with memory performance. Ooh. Option B. Ultrasonic velocity in cheddar cheese as affected by temperature. Or option C. <laughs> <laughs> Court. A quantitative spectroscopy analysis for non-invasive assessment of quality in aging bottled wines. Whoa. Kind of want B to be true. Um, I'm going to pick C. C. Okay. So I'll read you from the correct paper. Okay. Okay. Ultrasonic velocity. <laughs> yes! <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> oh, I don't know. 
Oh, oh no, I looked it up. I looked it up. Okay. Ultrasonic ultrasonic velocity is the speed in which sound propagates in a certain material. So in so but they, why in cheddar cheese? I think that they are they test the consistency and aging of the cheese by testing its ultrasonic velocity. So they want to know how... It's quick... a nice non-destructive test about the, the structural properties of the cheese. Of the cheese, yeah. yeah. That it's... was the idea, at least. But <laughs> okay. You know, I think this proved, though, that you give me an acronym, I'm like, it must be real. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even figure out what the acronym was for, but corked, right? I mean, it's good. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll work on that one later. Okay, okay, we didn't get that one, but if you've gone with your gut, you really would have gotten it, so we can give it to you. Okay, question number two, ethology. Option one, intermittent access to beer promotes binge-like drinking in adolescent but not adult Wistar rats. Option two, when the cat's away, hidden camera observations of play-like behaviors in unattended group-housed mice. Or C, do strategies for obtaining food scraps imply theory of mind in domesticated canines? I'm going for A, and I can tell you why. I might not even agree with. I'm okay, going for A. Why are you going for A? Should I tell you why? Yeah. yeah. So I worked for this man uh-huh. who I joke around about, but probably actually got tenure at the University of Sydney for showing that. What was his name? His name was Ian McGregor. <laughs> <laughs> did, the last the author, author of this, this paper. paper. Yes. <laughs> I have read this paper. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Fantastic. Boom. So, <laughs> so he, he got, to, I, I joke around about this, but I actually think it's true. I think he got tenure for showing that in a lot of rodent studies, when they do alcohol preference tests, they use ethanol, and they use mixtures of ethanol with sugar water. And he found that they much prefer beer. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how he discovered this. <laughs> yeah. No, in fact, uh, so I was there for a study abroad year. And uh, they got me to go, I was studying for my MCAT as well, and I was, like, working in lab, I was taking this really hard immunology class, I was, like, you know, doing all of these things, and so they kept having lab meetings, and I was like, oh my god, they have so many lab meetings. And so finally, like, you know, Ian says, Marika, and he's a Scottish-Australian dude, he's like, dopamine. <laughs> anyway, so he, he, uh, he Can you finally, just say that one more time? Dopamine. <laughs> okay, I think, we, I think we got that now on tape, we, we'll find a use for you that. You can probably find a YouTube video from doing this <laughs> So they were going to talk about dopamine. Uh, so so finally he was like, Mariko, you know, you really haven't been showing up for lab meeting. And I was like, I know, I'm really sorry. You know, I thought it wasn't my group presenting. I'm like, you know, trying to juggle all these things. He's like, well, make sure you show up. I was like, okay, like, you're really stern right now. I don't understand. So Friday I like finally go and I go to the address and show up at lab meeting. And it turns out lab meeting is go to the bar and drink beer. <laughs> yeah. so, so you've been missing out. I've been like missing out weeks weeks. every week. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the most successful version of the so game. So do I have to drink? Or? <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Is he really, he really, that's his paper, yeah. That is really his yeah. paper. In the, published in Alcohol, yep. 2009. Mm-hmm. I yeah. believe it. That's a really funny small world. <laughs> Okay, so uh, <laughs> really not my it also, He also says the findings support the use of beer solutions in modeling things like patterns of human alcohol consumption. This is the paper. Yeah. This is what I will be reading. <laughs> it's like Twilight Zone. Okay, this well, is you've amazing. Got one. You got one out of three. So this is for the game two out of three, okay. and you can have any of our voices on your answering machine. <laughs> I see where this came Yeah. <laughs> Question three. I do know this game. The, the human condition. Is it A? Chain reaction, epidemiology of environmental allergies in Hawaiian prison populations. B, the duration and frequency of yawning positively correlates with a subjective feeling of boredom for <laughs> Japanese children. 
or C? Would boar be born if bone were born before born? I think I'll need you to read that one again. <laughs> would would, would boar, as in Neil's, I, I know, it, it would boar, as in Neil's, Neil's boar, be bone, I actually don't know what this word means, B-O-H-M, would boar be born if bone, oh, a person named bone, B-O-H-M, who I don't know who it is, uh, were born before born. B-O-R-N, uh, another another person. So this is this is this 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 is implying a a sort of uh, quantum mechanical uh, joke uh, involving three physicists. Yes. And with, this is the worst joke. With, 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 would Niels Bohr be wow. born uh, if the or, if the if the order of these other uh, the order of birth of these other two physicists were inverted? That's the that's, that's the question. question which yes. is what was their major uh, findings in a boar? But what about the other two? <laughs> I think the other two are are both people who are physicists that have discussed the philosophical implications of quantum mechanical theory. So technically, <laughs> this is really just about the titles of the papers. <laughs> Well, with that introduction, I think I would like C to be true. Yeah, I'm afraid I gave that one away. <laughs> yeah. but... I think it's impossible to make up. That's just has yeah. to be true. And if you mean so, that so up, here... I think Nick wins. <laughs> Here's the, 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 the abstract. Uh, I discuss a hypothetical historical context in which a Bohm-like deterministic interpretation of the Schrodinger equation could have been proposed before the Born probabilistic interpretation and argue that in such a context, the Copenhagen slash Bohr interpretation would probably have never achieved great popularity among physicists. It's a great physics joke. Totally. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Okay, well, you win the game. It's two out of three, and you would have gotten in three out of three. Actually, I, I protest. This was only published on the archive. No, it was actually also published in American Journal of uh, Physics. Oh, okay. So you don't think it's true if it's published in archives? Well, it's not so really was, a paper if yeah. you just, you know, so three was, upload it to the internet. I mean. So three was none of the above, and I lost everything. No. no, no yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for speaking with us today, Mariko. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. Come have a drink with us next week when our guest will be Tony Ricci, a professor of otolaryngology and molecular and cellular physiology, as well as the director of the neuroscience graduate program here at Stanford. Brains of Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU. This episode was produced by Forrest Coleman, Nick Weiler, and myself, with production help from Julia Turan. For more information about Brains of Bourbon and Neurite West, and to read fascinating articles written by Stanford neuroscience graduate students and postdocs, please visit our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org.